0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: Do you have, as we start into our first guest tonight, do you have teenage kids? Do you have teenage grandkids? Have you ever been a teenager? Well, that pretty much covers everybody. If so, you certainly understand teenage sleeping patterns. Teenagers need sleep, and they need a lot of sleep. We just know that. We we you you look at the kids, you know that's the the way it is. And yet, here's the funny thing. For decades, for generations, we have started school, the school day, early enough that most kids, when they show up, are still sleepy. It's still in a teenager's natural sleep time. Now, not surprisingly, science, and especially some new studies, are showing this actually may be hurting our students when it comes to their marks. The fact that they have to pay attention in school before they're awake may be hurting them. Dr. Pamela McKeever is a professor with the at the Central Connecticut University. She is the lead author on a new study that talks about this. She joins us now. Dr. McKeever, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh,
2: you're welcome. Nice to speak
1: with you this evening. Uh, this this study you've done, I have to believe, as much as it's insightful, it can't really be that much of a shock. To a lot of people, can it that teenagers are sleepy in the morning, and that if we started a little bit later, it might be helpful to them?
2: Well, it's certainly not a surprise to the teenagers themselves, <laughs> and I think to, to a lot of parents, and uh, certainly scientists out there. Uh, we understand the mechanisms behind uh, the unique adolescent sleep patterns, and. Um, if you're a teacher, as I am and, and was for many years, you can see how tired they are first period, especially if they're starting before that 8.30 time.
1: You you did look at a lot, when you did this study, uh, you looked at a lot of kids with this. This was not a small study. How many people were actually involved? What were the numbers that you looked at for this?
2: Well, we looked at 29 different schools. Uh, and you know, it, it varied. It depended on whether we were looking at attendance or graduation. But definitely, more than thirty thousand students were looked at.
1: And you found what? What I mean, essentially, other than the I mean, the very basic is that start later and things go better. But what were the findings that you came up with?
2: Well, um, we saw that um, there certainly the evidence suggested that uh, graduation rates improved from about 79% to 88% when you saw that delay in, in time, in start time, and attendance rates improved from about 90% to 94%. We didn't see as much of a difference in the attendance rates. And,
1: and sorry, and is there, is, it, is there any other explanation for this, or do you draw a clear connection then between starting later and and these grades. is Could there be some other thing that we're not considering that could have been the cause?
2: Well, there are limitations to the study. I mean, you can never, you know, say for certain. Uh, but basically, there's a, a one in, in 40 chance that, um, you know, what I was try- that the difference in time change um, was not what I was measuring. Um, it was a quantitative study which means we really crunched the numbers. Um, We had a very stringent significance level. And, um, you know, we looked at it from a very um, um, scientific perspective, and I think these are the numbers that we come up with. You know, uh, from year to year, teacher to teacher, all the other factors that go into play when you're talking about graduation rates and attendance rates, that all comes into play. But overall, these were the findings of this study.
1: I don't know if this is your area of expertise, but can you explain the physiological reasons why a teenager who is tired, and it sounds obvious, but why a teenager who is tired is not going to be as good in school?
2: Um, Well, I'm an educator, Uh, sleep science, you know, I've had a little bit of background in. Um, I used to conduct sleep studies and work in neurophysiology. Um, I think, basically, uh, sleep patterns shift in adolescence, and because of that, um, our teenagers um, and our adolescents don't get sleepy um, at the times that we would like them to. <laughs> so this is based on research as well, um, melatonin levels, um, and, you know, through saliva samples. And we see that um, adolescents are not really getting sleepy until 11 p.m., and this isn't only in the human species that this um, phenomenon has been um, proven scientifically. So I think, you know, because it crosses species, we see that 11 o'clock is about the time that they're, they're going to start to feel this shift into drowsiness. And um, as you well know, some high schools are starting sooner um, than even 7.30, not really giving our adolescents enough time to sleep. Recommended times are up to nine hours a night, and, you know, as I say in my article, if you can, you know, do simple math calculations, you can see there really isn't enough time.
1: So I, there have been other studies or other, other people who have looked into this who have suggested this before. It may not be as expansive as the research you've just done, but if we've known this or strongly suspected that starting school a little bit later, and there are other school boards that have done their own things. there's There's a whole list of school boards that have thought this is the case and done it and found that they have had positive results. If we know this, why do we insist? Why do schools insist on continuing to keep going the way we are and starting at an early time of the day?
2: Well, I mean, this is my own personal opinion. I see that it's a real shift in mindset. You know, I think we've been doing it for many, many years. I think, um, you know, some families, some communities find it easier to have the teenagers home before the elementary school and the middle school students. Um, you know, I think in, in so, at some level you want to say this is a no-brainer, just do it. Um, for me, I say, you know, this is an easy intervention certainly to try out. You know, do a trial period, see if it makes a difference. I think what you get into is the logistics, you hear about busing, you hear about sports schedules, you hear about work schedules, you hear about uh, amount of homework, will they have time to complete it, you hear about a lot of things, but I think, you know, trying the intervention and, um, you know, collecting your own data and making your own decisions and really prioritizing student um, needs first, you know, should be the priority.
1: Do we know, uh, and again, this doesn't really fall into it, but if students are able to pay more attention to their classes and to their work if they start a little later, do we find a similar thing with discipline? Uh, Do we find that kids are getting in less trouble, that there's less distractions in class if they start a little bit later?
2: Well, I mean, that goes beyond the scope of my study. But, um, you know, what I can point out is that if you are able to graduate, Um, to me, that tells me you've attended enough classes and you've, you know, followed the rules of the classroom enough uh, to be able to earn those credits and graduate. So, again, that, you know, that's just me connecting the dots, but I would say um, that, you know, it could be a possibility, but, again, that's beyond the scope of my study.
1: Just before I let you go, because I know you've got to run, but uh, the, the study suggests that it is better if school doesn't start any earlier than 830 by either the math, by the study or by your own experience. What is the best time? I mean, it, would would it be better for kids if we started at 10 knowing how teenagers operate or 11? That may not be feasible, but would that actually be the most helpful?
2: Well, you know, I think that there's plenty of scientific research out there to indicate that 8:30 or later or 8:35 or later is enough time. Um n- for me, I, w- I would like to see it even later than that, probably closer to nine o'clock. But I think students could be so much more successful if, um, you know, if they have this shot at starting, you know, at least at eight thirty-five, um, you know, and no earlier than that.
1: It is uh, it is a very interesting thing. And, and, uh, doctor, I appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for spending time with us. You're welcome. Uh, Dr. Pamela McKeever from Central Connecticut University. You can read about it. There's lots and lots of stories that moved in the last few days about this study that they've done. And who doesn't believe that this is true? Who who has ever been around teenagers doesn't believe, especially teenage, well, I shouldn't, should I say, especially teenage boys? My experience would be, especially with teenage boys, as one, once upon a time, and having had a son, especially teenage boys, boy, it seems so logical. It seems so obvious that if we were to start the school day a little bit later and let them sleep a little bit later, they would do better. And I know the answer is, well, come on, parents, just put your kids to bed earlier. Make them go to sleep at eight o'clock or eight 30 or whatever. So they can be up at seven to get to school. Have you tried to put a 13 or 14 or 15 year old kid to bed at eight o'clock or eight 30 doesn't work anymore. It doesn't happen like that. You, they go to sleep when they are tired. They go to sleep when they're ready to go to sleep. And so it's not just a case. This is not five year olds where you have bedtime and you can put them down and say, go to sleep and I'll read you a story or sing you a song or put on some music and they'll just fall asleep. It doesn't happen. And so if we know. And all the science, all the studies, go look, there's more than just this one. Let me, let me give you something here. Uh, in the fall of 2016, and these are all from the Massachusetts area where they decided to try this, Hanover High School started a half hour later. Now, they were already starting really early. They were starting at 725. They moved it to 755. They saw a 32% decrease in Ds and Fs and a 10% increase in As. Nossett, I don't know how you pronounce it, N-A-U-S-E-T, high school, changed to start at 8.35 from 8, saw a 50% decrease in D's and F's. Uh, Is there any other ones here? There were other ones. The science, the numbers would all suggest that this makes sense. Why don't we do it? Surely, surely, we're not just doing it for the convenience of the staff and the teachers. If that's the reason that we're starting school at the time we are... That seems to me to be an unacceptable reason to do it. I'd love to see around here some school board say listen, if the number exists, if the number if the numbers are there, if the science exists that it's worth taking a look at. Let's start a little bit later. Let's see what happens. Let's see if we can actually improve the grades, the opportunities for our students by starting. Well, I mean, what would be the worst-case scenario? What would be the worst thing that could happen if a high school said, our school is now going to start classes at 930? Well, I'll tell you what the worst case scenario would be. Instead of getting out at three, you might get out at four. You might get out at four. Is, is, that a, is that a horrible thing? I suppose it could have some impact on sports and other things between other schools who don't get out at that time. So you start the game a little bit later. But for the teachers for the staff if they don't get done at 3 or 3 30 if they have to start their post-school working their grading and everything else a little later is that um is that the end of the world i i don't think so i think that actually if if the kids are going to be better isn't that what teachers say every single time they're asked we're here for the benefit of the kids and i believe it i believe for most teachers they are doing it for the benefit of the kids if that's the case I would think that they would be very on board with the idea of trying to start a little bit later, starting later, working later, same amount of hours, just a different time frame if that can make that kind of difference. Love to see some school board around here take a take a crack at that one.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900
3: CHML.
1: This story, I want to I want to return to a story that we first talked about on this program probably close to, well, about three years ago now. And it started out with a uh, not a good story. I'll be honest with you. This was a really depressing, devastating, upsetting story when we first brought it to you because it involved an 18-year-old hockey player, only 18 years old, played for the Hamilton Red Wings at the time. And a guy who was in great health, no signs of injury, no signs of trauma, no signs of anything gets up while he's watching the sports highlights one morning at home and collapses and has a massive stroke. 18 years old has a massive stroke. Hockey career seemingly is over. Well, I tell you what, we wanted to bring him back. Riley Dunda is his name. We wanted to bring him back because you want to know something less than less than three years later. Boy, this story has a, not an ending yet, but a happy latest chapter. Riley joins us now. Riley, how are you tonight? Yeah, I'm pretty good. how's it going? It's going very well it's going listen i I wanted to bring you back because I don't know of a better story right now a happier story than what's going on with you but let's before we get to the really good part and people want to you're gonna want to stick around to hear this let's go back to the very beginning of this for a second just to remind people of where you were in May of two thousand and fourteen uh, when you woke up because you you had you collapsed at home and you, you got taken to the hospital and they did some emergency surgery on you when you woke up, describe for me tell us. What was going on with your body? What was working? what wasn't working? what What was the state of you?
4: I remember like trying to move, and my left side was moving, and my right side was just was uh, just staying there. Um, like it it wasn't doing. it wasn't moving. there was't there wasn't any response it was it was frustrating. So I guess uh, like, I was relieved because you know, like, to live through that and all to you, like something like that is uh, pretty intense.
1: Yeah, you were alive. Yeah, which is the good sign. But the your, yeah. your so your right hand you couldn't move your right hand. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't move your right leg. Right. And when you were talking, your words were. Slurry and a little jumbly. It was hard to speak.
4: They're, they're, yeah, they didn't make any sense.
1: When you came and you had been in a medically induced coma, you'd been unconscious for a few days. When you woke up, did you really understand what was going on, or was it very confusing?
4: No it it was it was just confusing. Like I really didn't know how serious um, it was.
1: When do you remember when the first time was that you heard the word stroke? That someone told you that you had had a stroke?
4: Yeah, it was. I think it was probably like in within ten days of it happening to me. I I knew that I would had a stroke. Yeah,
1: and and roughly at that time, what was really interesting was roughly around that time. There's a guy who plays for the Pittsburgh Penguins named Chris Letang who had had did they use the word stroke at that time? It was a a brain injury of some kind, but so you had become aware that, okay, Chris Letang had this and had to leave the NHL for a while. And you're kind of thinking, okay, uh, he and I have a similar injury. Uh, Turned out it wasn't really the same at all. Yours was drastically more significant.
4: Yeah, actually I was talking about this to uh, my dad the other day. I was like, you know, when Kurt Latanga had it, I thought, like, that was a stroke. That was like, that hard. And then um, there's, like, there's whole other um, areas of your body that uh, shut down when you get one. And um, so I didn't know that. And then, I, know, I guess it was, like, probably three months into it, it was... It was like, oh man, like this isn't, this isn't fun like Christmas <laughs> time.
1: Well, how long was it after that you came to, that you had your stroke, that you were able to actually start trying to rehabilitate and trying to start getting better? How long did that take?
4: Yeah, the, um, I think it was like day four.
1: Really? Okay. That quickly?
4: No, it was because I was in the hospital, right? And they, um, they're actually pretty good, so.
1: And how long until you thought that you could start to see even some kind of results, that things were starting to improve? Was it immediate or did it take a while?
4: Um, well, okay. Like, I guess it was immediate because, like, every. Uh, I don't know how to put this. Um, it's like every day, I guess, like, something new would happen and um, I'd want to do something else with, like, Part of my body. So
1: that that said, though, Riley, I, I I've not, and thankfully for me and the other listeners who have never been through this, and we're thankful for that. Let's be honest. Um, mm. But I have to believe that trying to rehabilitate from something this devastating, it's it, it's not pleasant. It's not a lot of fun day after day to be trying to do these things.
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's not. It's uh, it's hard, but uh, you get through it. Um, everyone to, you uh, that you need is, uh, more than, uh, welcoming.
1: But and, you, uh, you were an athlete, you were a, a high level athlete and, and now your body is not cooperating. Does it ever, are, are you ever doing these exercises? Are you ever doing this rehab and thinking this is just so depressing that I can't do what I used to do?
4: No, cause, um, to, to be honest, like, um, I go and, uh, work out, uh, five times, four to five times a week. And, um, like, I can almost do what I was able to do before. Um, uh, We're getting there, so. Which is amazing.
1: Which is amazing. You, um, so, okay, so the reason I wanted to bring you on is because this is May the 4th, was it? May the 4th? Yeah, May the 4th of 2014, you have this stroke. It was, as I say, I don't want to overstate it, but it was a devastating injury to your a brain injury and it affected your body. We're now less than three years from that. You're at Niagara College taking broadcasting. And as I understand it, one of the guys you go to school with comes up to you and says, hey, we're starting an intramural hockey team. You want to play?
4: Yes. I, actually, uh that's his house uh I'm at tonight because we got a big game tonight, so
1: did he That's know fine. when he asked you? did he know your backstory
4: uh yeah, that was uh apparently uh like what the guys were telling me they were, they all knew about it because uh he had he had told them and that he had an idea, and um he just went for it, and i uh, happened to say sure
1: was there any doubt in your mind or was it sure right away? Because, I mean, you've been off, it's only three years, but it's it's been a long three years. You've been not playing hockey for a long time. Did you say, ah, sure, this is great, I'll do it, or did you go, oh, yeah, I'll do it, but in your mind you're going, I'm not really sure if I can do this.
4: Yeah, that's that's what it was. It was it was right away, but um, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, shit, no, oh, crap. <laughs> um, like... I don't know if I can do this. And,
1: and so did you tell your parents or do you keep it secret from them at first that you're thinking about doing this?
4: Yeah. Um, it took me about uh, three weeks until I was like, yeah, Ty strange is, uh, you know, he uh, asked me to play in real hockey. And, I, and they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, yeah. It was only sixty-five bucks, and I just wanted to see what how uh, my skating was, and that my dad's like, "Uh, okay, yeah. Were they nervous?
1: It sounds like they may have been a little nervous.
4: Yeah, they were. They uh, it was it was pretty funny. Um, They weren't nervous as much as they were like, holy crap! I can't believe he's going to try it again.
1: Well, okay, so you get to the rink Um, first thing. I was wondering about is you you you're back to not 100% but you're getting there with your right hand but you know what you need strength in your hands to tie your skates can you do that or do you need help with someone to do that
4: uh no no I can uh I can tie my skates but uh like the hard things like um stick handling and passing and shooting um I still gotta work on that um but I'm sure um It'll come back in time and it uh, works.
1: So you step on the ice uh, for this first game. Now you've been on the ice a few times before because you were helping coach a team, and there's been you. It's not the first time you've been on the ice, but it's the first time you've been on the ice for a game. You get on for your first shift. Is it immediately just hockey, or the whole time you're on there? Are you thinking about the challenges and the new things you have to learn to be able to do this again?
4: Um, to be honest, you. It wasn't. No, I wasn't even like I just thought hockey. I thought, okay, well we may as well, might as well see what happens and all the good stuff, right?
1: And what did happen? Were I mean, it, it sounds silly, but were you able to play?
4: Yeah, um, I uh, I played last night, and uh, all the guys were. Uh, you know, it's it's a team. It's uh, it's, uh like what's the with a bunch of guys who are really nice and they want to be uh, your friends. It's a good time.
1: Okay. Now that said, and that's great, and, and I understand that. That's the best part about being on a team. But you were a guy who played very high level, and so when you played back in the day, you would never ever have to think about the physical side of skating, about the technique of skating, you just did it. You get on the ice and you don't even think you just play the game. You do have, even though it's very optimistic and you're so much ahead of where a lot of people thought you were, you still do have some physical challenges. So how do you, one leg is not as strong as the other. How do you make it work? How do you actually get on there and make everything go so you can be a hockey player?
4: Yeah, it's Um Well, it's like, Yeah, it's Yager. He was 26 once, and the NHL loved him, and he was fast. Now he's 45, (laughs) and he's not fast. (laughs) He just, his game adjusted, right?
1: So that's just what it is. It's just figuring out how to change things?
4: Yeah, that's all it is.
1: Have you scored a goal yet?
4: I haven't. I got to admit, the guys, uh, they've been really good. Uh, They've been trying to set me up. So we're we're gonna we're gonna try and see if we can get him tonight.
1: Have you hit anybody yet?
4: Uh I bumped into someone <laughs> and uh felt pretty bad about it but uh... <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was good Well, listen, when we look back three years And I'm sure your family, I'm sure even you Think about this, when you look less than three years back That you were in a hospital bed and you couldn't really move And you see where you are now playing hockey I mean, it's just a, it's a remarkable story And you've done, a, I want to say this You've done a, a lot uh, to be a spokesman To be a front man, kind of, for different causes You've spoken to other kids who have had strokes and stuff I mean, it's, uh, it, it's considering where you were It's pretty darn optimistic, the whole story
4: yeah um it's a, it's a good story but there's um there's still more work that um I want to do and uh like people want to uh when they want to listen they're uh, pretty good at it so yeah
1: well, it is Riley Dunda. It's, it's, it's a terrific story. It's going to be in the paper in a couple days or a day or so, so people can f- see more about it. And um, listen, Riley, appreciate the time today. Good luck tonight. Hope you get that first goal. Yeah, thank you very much. It is, uh, that yeah, again, that is Riley Dunda. He played for the Hamilton Red Wings. Riley plays it down quite a bit. But his situation was extreme. And, I mean, it was really, really bad when it first started. And to think that he is back on skates playing hockey, and I've seen video, I didn't see the game, I, I've, I've seen video of him playing his first game back, and you know what? There are many, 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 many people in this country who have not gone through what he's gone through, who would not be able to play hockey nearly as well as him even now. The, the, what he, the, the physical recovery that he's had is quite amazing. It really is. And it's a great story because back, I remember when I, I wrote about this, when it first happened, and I got to tell you the idea that an 18 year old kid, again, who was in great health, who was a really good hockey player could have all of his physical gifts and his opportunities physically in life snatched away, just seems so unfair and so bleak. So to see him back playing again, it's not obviously the same level. It's not the same level of competition, but it's playing again, uh, is, is very very uplifting and very, very encouraging. Glad, always glad to have him on here to talk about it because it's a, it's, it is a great story. Not everyone has this recovery. I understand, but when you find one that, someone who has, you want to celebrate it. And he's one of those ones.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML.
1: You would understand what I'm going to talk about next, and that is, this is a league that has consistently. Over the years, found ways to mangle almost every single discipline issue that it's ever had to hand down. Doesn't matter who's in the office of discipline, it's a mess. It's a mess. And here's where things get really goofy. This is a league that is saying, by its actions, that it really would like for fighting to be worked out of the game. It's not going to ban fighting, but it wants to make fighting go away. It's quite happy that the enforcers are fading away. And one of the ways that you make sure that fighting goes away is when there is a cheap shot in the game, you come down like a ton of bricks on the player who committed the infractions so that the other players say, hey, I don't have to fight. I don't have to police this game myself. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. The league is going to do that for me. And yet time after time after time after time, the league fails to do that and sends the conflicting message that we want fighting out, but if fighting is a way to deter cheap shots, we're not going to actually do anything to bolster that. It's a it's an embarrassing situation for the league, and this all comes to a head again because the other day, Gustav Nyquist of the Detroit Red Wings, they're playing against the Minnesota Wild, he gets a slight a slight, and I mean slight, go watch the video, a slight cross-check to the back. It was not vicious, it was not brutal, it was not something that was going to cause injury. He gets up, looks at Jared Spurgeon, the guy who hit him, looks at him, and pitchforks him right in the face with his stick. It is one of the most vicious things you will see in hockey. He was centimeters away from plucking out Spurgeon's eye and ending his career. And in fact, the NHL itself in its decision today, acknowledged, as a quote, it easily could have resulted in a major, if not career-threatening injury. The NHL acknowledges that this was a grotesque maneuver that could have ended a guy's career. And what do they do? Six games. Six games. It is, once again, an embarrassment to hockey that they cannot police themselves, that they cannot hand down the right level of discipline. I don't know what the exact number was, but it was a lot more than six games. Monday night when we were chatting sports with Don Roberts and we were talking about this. um, I I can't remember what we had exactly predicted, but thought I'd bring Don back here to talk about this, because Don, whatever the lowest amount was that we said he was going to get, I think this is below that.
3: Yeah, it's an insult to the intelligence of the hockey fan, and the NHL should be ashamed of themselves. I mean, they're, they i watched the video explanation of it, Scott, as I'm sure you did. And they said they believed him, that he was taking his stick around so he could cross-check him back. Now, it's one thing for them to try and swallow that and turn it into the truth. It's something far different to publicly acknowledge it and make anybody that's ever watched the game more than 15 minutes in their whole life try and believe that. He speared the guy in the face.
1: And, and, and came and centimeters, they, centimeters away from a disastrous situation.
3: What they, what they, in essence, said by acknowledging that, saying, had he have got him in the eye, we would have had to give him more games. Again, I've used the term before. The guy is only guilty of bad aim. If he gets him in the eye, he gets 40 games, if not an entire season, and his privileges should be taken away. I saw the whole video there, um, it, it was not a vicious hit from behind. It was a puny cross check, and it was a gutless move to come up and do that. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, you talked about it a little bit, but uh, the guy on coach's corner has been saying it ever since they took out the instigator. And you don't need lugheads around to do this. And I'm not sure Lenquist would have done this, but. of the guys would have dropped the gloves and beat the snot out of the guy. And if he gets the instigator, he gets the instigator. So what? I lost a player Saturday night because he told the referee to go do something that he shouldn't. And he misses two games just for talking.
1: Well, we saw this in the NHL, Don, uh, around the same time. Antoine Vermette, who uh, interestingly was playing against Minnesota as well, they seem to be in the middle of all these things, plays for Anaheim. Uh, was upset about the way a face-off was done, and he he slashed, uh, and I use the word slashed liberally, he tapped the linesman in the seat of the pants. Now, the rules are absolutely clear, and I have no objection to them enforcing the rules. Vermette, because he uh, hit an official with his stick, he gets 10 games instantly. And what this shows is, in my mind, that the Department of Player Safety is a complete joke, but the Department of Official Safety is working just fine. How you could possibly, even though it was an official, and again, I have no issue with Vermette getting suspended because that's what the rule says, how you could say that one thing out of that was worth 10 games and the other was worth less is completely head-scratching to me. Completely. I don't get it at all.
3: As a former referee... You're not out there with any expectation. First of all, you don't have a stick to fight back. And there's no expectation that, that you would be harmed by a player slashing you or pushing you, right? I mean, if you, you're you breaking up a fight and you catch one in the squash, that's part of the business. But uh, there is no expectation, and they have to do that. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's an absolute embarrassment. For a guy to get whacked on the butt and get 10 games just totally embarrasses. The National Hockey League, by virtue of them giving six games to a guy, it could easily have ruined a, ended a career. Career so, ending.
1: So my question is this, Don, and the reason I want to talk about it today is not just to point out how useless the NHL's discipline system is, because it always is. We've talked about this forever. They 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 mangle almost every single discipline issue they deal with. Why? can they so seldom get this right? Why are we talking about this with the NHL time after time after time after time? How difficult could it possibly be to get one of these things right?
3: Well, here's what's frightening. First of all, they're in the entertainment business. We all know that. So you don't want any of your players, especially your premier players, missing extended periods of time because that's what the fans pay for. But you just flip the switch to the other direction and you say... What if they do that? What if that had a bit – this is the interesting question. What if that had been Sidney Crosby who got speared in the face? I'm absolutely convinced it would have been 25 games for openers. So they don't have a standard. It depends on how bad your aim is and who you hit and probably who hit you. It's absurd. And if the NHL Players Association want respect from the fans – and I don't know as they care if they get it or or do the NHL. They would appeal that suspension and say, "He, our guy should get 20 games for doing that." Then the NHLPA can say, "We're sticking up for our players." Well, but that- if they don't protest protest that and ask for more, they may they may as well just say we're only in this for to negotiate contracts not player safety. They throw that player safety committee out the window.
1: Well, the the, the Department of Player Safety is an oxymoron if there ever was one. There is, no, there is clearly no real concern for player safety. What it is a concern for is protecting the salaries, apparently, of the players because we don't want to give them too much of a suspension and we don't want to hurt the team too much. And here, again... I talked to a player agent today about this and I said, listen, if you were not Nyquist's agent, because Nyquist's agent, I'm sure, had, along with him, had an opportunity to speak or at least prepare his client for what he was going to say. But if you were Spurgeon's agent, the guy who got high-sticked, would you have an opportunity to speak at this hearing? Would you have had an opportunity? Would they have come to you and said, what do you think would be a fair penalty? And he said, I've never heard of that happening. So the, the victim of this essentially is unrepresented and remains a nobody, and the only person that matters in this whole thing is the person who committed the crime. That, to me, doesn't make sense, especially, Don, when both guys are paying the Players Association their dues. So the Players Association don't just represent the guy who committed the act. They represent both guys. Why are they not protecting both guys?
3: Well, they don't. And, and like I said to you, the NHLPA should appeal that suspension to be higher, not lower.
1: But they never will do that. Not in a million years would they do that.
3: No, I didn't say, didn't say they would. I said they should. Yeah, I, I hear you. They, they should stick up for them, and they should push it. And the National Hockey League should be embarrassed, but they're not. And the NHLPA should be embarrassed, but they're not. The, the bad part is hockey players are as tough as friggin' nails. And so the guy only misses the shifts while he gets stitched up. And if it were slap shot, then it stitched him up right on the bench. You know what I mean? Like, if it was a basketball player, the guy's likely gone two weeks.
1: So let me go back then. Why can this not seem to ever be done right? Because it does seem to be over and over and over we end up having these. Now, this one's an extreme case because it was such an egregious foul. But why do we seem to have these discussions all the time that the NHL always comes in on the low end when it comes to discipline?
3: Again, I go back to the fact that it's the entertainment business and they don't want players out. I mean, they they seem to be able to justify it in their own mind, and they did it in, in assessing this when they said they believed that he was turning so he could cross-check the player. Now, who in their right mind that saw that video believes for one second they thought that guy was turning? He speared the guy in the face, and but- the NHL apologized and said, we believe he was turning, so we could cross-check him back.
1: Okay, so now you're, the defense now is the defense now is on my way to committing a violent act against him. I committed an accidental violent act. I don't think it defends you. I don't think it gets you off the hook by saying all that happened when I speared him was that it interrupted my attempt to clobber him.
3: Well, yeah, but that's that in part is part of their explanation. That's I know how they, that's how they wiggle out of this. He was just going to turn and cross-check him. And the only reason we're giving him six games, justifying the six, is because he has the control of his stick. It was careless use of his stick. It was a high stick. They're basically saying, oops, he he shouldn't have done that because all he was going to do was cross-check the guy. So we're only giving him six games. But he could have taken his eye out. Absolutely could, could have.
1: Now, let me go back to your point, because I, I know you're right. I, I know you're right about the fact that you know this is the entertainment industry, the entertainment business, and all that kind of stuff. But the American Hockey League, when they were in Hamilton, and even now, uh, Dave Andrews is the commissioner there. That's the entertainment industry. And when uh, 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 what's the name? Alexander Parajogan of the Hamilton Bulldogs years ago slashed Garrett Stafford right in the face with a vicious baseball bat swing. He gave him a year. And if you go to the OHL with Dave Branch, Dave Branch has set new benchmarks for suspensions over and over and over again. There's no, you hit a guy from behind, you make contact with a guy's head, you're out for a long, long time. Those are entertainment industries. Why can those leagues get it right and the NHL not get it right?
3: There is no answer to that question. I mean, um, David Branch takes playing privileges away for people that abuse the system and don't play within the normal guidelines of the game. The, the, the OHL, to get rid of fighting, just said if you get multiple fights, the more fights you get in, the longer your suspension is. So you know what? I'll guarantee you in the OHL right now, and I haven't checked the stats, I could ask Jay McKee. Be, once you get in like 10 fights, it's a huge suspension. There'll be all kinds of guys sitting at 8 and 9 now and won't, won't get in another fight for the next 25 games because they can control themselves. To answer your question, Dave Andrews is concerned about the safety of his players. They don't work for the NHL, although all the players are supplied by NHL teams. And if the truth were known and you got a GM out for a beer and a plate of chicken wings and talked to him about it, they would tell you that Dave Branch and the American Hockey League and Dave Andrews, they get it. They do it right. The NHL don't. And again, if it's Sidney Crosby that gets hit, the guy gets 25 games, and that's what makes it worse.
1: Well, and what if it's Sidney, now? it wouldn't happen? I, I, I will say that the chances of it being Sidney Crosby delivering that kind of blow are almost negligible because he seems, for whatever reason, and the other superstars seem capable of controlling themselves. But what if it had been Sidney Crosby who delivered that shot? I don't believe he even gets six games.
3: No, he gets two minutes for high sticking.
1: And maybe a game because they say he caught him and they would come up with some Hair-brained explanation for how it was accidental. I, I, I'm sorry. I find this whole thing embarrassing for the league, and we all love the NHL. We love hockey. This is a continuing source of embarrassment to this league. And then the time they come down like a ton of bricks on someone, and you pointed this out on Monday night, is Marty McSorley when his career is basically done anyway. So here's our chance to really show how tough we're going to be and how hard we're going to be because we know he's never going to play again.
3: Well, I said it back then. They're setting a dangerous precedent. They're taking advantage of McSorley's at the end of his career. So you're right. Let's hammer him. The problem is the next guy that does it, and I hate using Sidney Crosby because he's such a nice young man, but if Sidney Crosby does the same thing, he gets four games. So there is no rhyme or reason as to what they do. They do whatever they want. They do whatever they feel they can get away with, I think. And it's wrong. And you and I can talk about it for the next 24 years, and we're not going to fix it because if they're not embarrassed about it, we can't embarrass them.
1: Donald, just before I let you go, do you think Do you think this has an impact on fans? Do you, I mean, other than the hour or two after the suspension when everyone is bent out of shape, do you think that people really over time begin to build up a sense of lack of whatever for the NHL or do they uh, they just forget about it 5 minutes later
3: the NHL i'm sure have done some polling on it because they're you know they're very sensitive to their pub- public image like politicians are and if they thought that were the case they would change it so no i don't think it will affect one fan from going to an NHL
1: game you know what you know what would right. affect it you know what would affect it if that had been if that high stick had led him to literally poke his eye out, and the ice was covered in blood, suddenly they would have been very upset, A, because a player was hurt, and B, because fans would have been upset by seeing that, as they were years ago with Clint Malarchuk and with other ones, and suddenly now it would have been a big deal because we can't let our fans see that kind of thing on the ice. They are so, The NHL is so fortunate, and Nyquist and Spurgeon are so fortunate this thing was not a catastrophic injury, that it's it's... I, I just can't believe that they can be dancing around this thing again and offering such mealy mouth explanations for why they're giving such a soft penalty. I really can't.
3: Well, and they, and they are going to as long as they can get away with it. They've, that's the statement with this suspension. As long as we can get away with giving away minimum suspensions for, for fierce and ugly acts like this, we're going to continue to do it. And as, soon, and as soon as somebody loses an eye, heaven forbid, or gets killed, even worse heaven forbid then they'll act because they have no choice
1: well then they'll act then they'll act outraged like they've been preparing for this all along and you will be able to look and find numerous cases where the same thing was done the only difference being the outcome where the same thing was done and got a slap on the wrist and suddenly now they'll be in a position where they'll have to say well because of the outcome it's a lot worse where but it was the same thing that was done that's that's the problem they're going to face
3: Remember my point, guilty of bad aim.
1: Don Robertson, thank you for doing this, sir. Always appreciate it.
3: Tell everybody to come Friday night when we play the Stony Creek Generals and dunn mascot
1: at 7.30. Uh, You just did. Thanks, Don. All right, see you later. Uh, Yeah, you know what? There have been numerous cases. The next time this does happen, or sometime down the road when this does happen and someone does lose an eye, how are they possibly going to be able to come down and say it's 25, 30, 50 games a year, when the exact same thing was worth six games this time, even just because he missed
0: by two or three centimeters, by no great work of his own. It doesn't make any sense. I I told you this last night during one of the breaks, but it didn't surprise me that it was six games. Oh, no, it didn't surprise me. like Specifically that number, because they set the precedent already. Last year, at the end of the season, Duncan Keith gets knocked down, ironically, by another Minnesota Wild player. They're always at the center of these things. And he is on his back, looks up, takes his stick, and swings it straight into the head of the player, and he got six games for it. Like, you keep bringing up the Parrish Hogan thing, and the AHL did the absolute right thing with that suspension. But in that case, and I just watched the video again to make sure I was remembering correctly, Parrish Hogan doesn't look where he's swinging until a couple seconds before he hits the head. So... It was a vicious, brutal attack, but I don't think he aimed for his head. In both the Nyquist and Keith incidents, there was clear evidence in my mind that they aimed for the head of the player and used their stick to make an attack on the head, and they both got six games. So played. here's, we got to go to break, but here's the here's the way you fix this. There, there is a way you can
1: fix this, and, I, and, and you know, the, I, we keep coming back to precedent. At the start of the year, the NHL should be calling all the players in and saying, listen, we blew it with six games before. We blew it. That was an that was an ugly thing. From now on, that kind of event is going to be worth much, much more. We're starting fresh, beginning of a year. You can and you know what? Let the NHL take you to PA take you to court. Let the player take you to an arbitrator. Say we cannot afford to allow this to go on and look like a joke of a league. If you get into a fist fight in the NBA, you probably get ten games. Just a fist fight. Nobody gets hurt. Now, I know there's no fighting in basketball, but how you can possibly, as the NHL, look in the mirror, look your fans in the face and say, this was, this was justice being done. This was a good call. We are all hockey fans up here. We all understand. The NHL has no ability to police itself. It is an absolute, unmitigated joke when it comes to discipline in this league. And it's going to continue to happen until someone, as Don said, someone gets hit from behind into the boards. Then breaks his neck or we lose an eye or something else and then suddenly it'll come down like a ton of bricks when all along they could have been protecting against this and setting the bar saying no we're not going to allow this to go on anymore it's ridiculous
0: The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 AM 900 CHML